As you're being seated, take out your Bibles and turn to the book of James, chapter 5. Children in 3rd through 5th grade, you are dismissed to your class. We're going to be finishing up our series in the book of James with just looking at the last couple of verses. And uh, we've been working through this since January, so it's exciting to wrap something up. We look forward to next Sunday kicking off our summer uh, sermon series called Greatest Hits taking some, some fresh looks at some classic Bible texts. Uh, if you thought of the, the 10 most familiar passages of the Bible, scripture memory verses you've ever heard of, we're going to look at those in context and see what they really have to say to us. And so we hope you join us next week uh, as we begin our summer sermon series. Um, but uh, today I just want to say... Um, how thankful I am for all the dads in the house, and I know we mentioned some things in the welcome, but uh, I'm grateful myself to, uh, to be the son of a father who was faithful to the Lord and continues to be uh, just a shining example of what it means to uh, set a, a great pace for his kids. Uh, he's, oh, I never once wondered whether he loved me. Um, and uh, was in my corner, and it's a blessing and a privilege. It's a great gift that I've received from God in my life, and so I love my dad, um, and I just, I just want to say to all of you dads out there, uh, maybe you don't feel like you've been perfect. You feel like you've made a lot of mistakes along the way as a father. Uh, the best thing you can do is just keep improving and walking with the Lord and, and let that growth and change in your life be passed on to your kids. Uh, it's worth staying in the fight and continuing to be a blessing blessing to them, uh, and they will thank you for it as they continue to mature and to grow. Um, James 5, we're just going to read the last two verses of James 5, verse 19 and 20. It says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, and will cover over a multitude of sins. Lord, we, we pray for your blessing on your word. Lord, we pray that today as we look into it, as we think about just this small portion of it, Lord, that you would use it to shape uh, the vision for our lives, for our church, for how we interact with one another. Lord, that you would protect us from wandering. You would remind us that you're a God who loves and pursues wanderers. Lord, we are grateful for your grace to know that you have a gracious heart toward us and that is so clearly seen in the love of your Son. And we ask that today as we uh, look in your word, that you would just strengthen us, that you would give us insight, you would give us the willingness to be corrected, to be stirred up to fresh motivation and action. And we pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you can uh, over, wow, now it's, it's happening. Uh, I know poor Josh back there is trying to figure it out. It seems like, you know, it's, it's impossible to tell what it is. And I usually know the answers. We've been setting up and tearing down for like 17 years. There's only a small handful of things that would do uh, what this is doing. But since it's doing, to, doing it to every channel, 
I just really don't know. So here, here's what we'll do. If, if we lose the sound, I'm just going to talk really loud. This isn't that big a place. And, um, and we're going to plow on and not worry about it. And as things go in and out, do your best uh, to try to ignore uh, the interruption and we'll respond well. Um, we don't need to be distracted from God's word by a few technical difficulties. Um, so um, several years ago, we were on a family trip to Virginia Beach. Uh, I've got four daughters. Um, it was a short sort of overnight trip to have some fun together and try to let kind of the salt water wash away our worries and concerns in life for a day. I don't know if the beach does that for you, but it does it for me. After several hours of uh, hanging out, things were really going great. We were settled into a moment that young parents of four kids really dream about. Everyone seemed satisfied. We were relaxed. Annie and I were talking wistfully without the driving necessity to solve things. It was like a deep breath of fresh air. All of a sudden, in a moment, I looked up and said, where's Gracie? That's our third child. She was, we argued about this yesterday. She was like four to six at the time. We can't remember exactly. But there were not that many people on the beach. And I did a quick scan left and right and then out into the water and she was nowhere to be seen. The moment of calm had been blown up now by a full-on panic inside of me. I rushed down to the water's edge to look for a bobbing child in hopes of last-minute rescue bewildered and losing my mind. That was my legitimate reaction. My face went white. Annie, who was certainly concerned, but maybe in this situation kept her head a bit better, stood up and walked over to the lifeguard chair and said, our four-year-old is missing. Immediately, the lifeguard said, is her name Gracie? You know, the lifeguard at one of the stands down the beach had a girl that had gotten lost named Gracie. All was well and disaster was averted. When she came back, she told us they were playing a game and she was running away from Penelope, who was supposed to have been chasing her. And they were playing a game and before long she had run around and hadn't paid attention and she had wandered so far off that she didn't see anything familiar. Nothing looked the same and she was lost and someone helped her find the lifeguard. She had wandered away without even realizing it. And even worse, we hadn't even noticed. Now, in this passage, uh, he talks about wandering. James wants to motivate actually everyone in the church. He wants to motivate everyone in the church to be watchful of those who wander from the truth. The whole point of this last closeout is that James has been talking about difficult circumstances and trials, challenging moments in life, and he's, talking, he's been talking about enduring through those and, and bringing our life in an undivided way before God, but he knows that in the midst of those really difficult moments, there are times when people wander away. And the question for the church is, does anyone notice? What will happen... When we wander, sometimes we have answers for what we had hoped would protect us from wandering away from God. 
But here he says it's a matter for everyone to be engaged and motivated to help bring those who wander back to walking in the truth. And so since today we're going to talk about spiritual wandering and use that terminology that the text gives us over and over again, I want to try to get at what James means here by spiritual wandering. Because maybe you found yourself at, at some time in your life in a time of spiritual wandering. Maybe you would be honest to say that you feel you may be on the edge of that even now. Well, I would describe spiritual wandering as a season of uncertainty, discouragement, or rejection of previously held Christian convictions. A season of uncertainty, discouragement, or maybe even rejection of previously held Christian convictions. It can be doctrinal, it can be related to intellectual things about our beliefs that can cause us to wander away from things we were once rooted in. It can be practical, it can be related to our actions. We begin to engage in things normally we would have considered previously out of bounds. It can be emotional, related to the things we care about and how we feel about walking with the Lord. Or it can be some combination of all of them. But spiritual wandering is a reality in many people's lives. And it's a concern for us to care about protecting one another from spiritual wandering so that we can remain steadfast and single-minded and undividedly devoted to Christ as we navigate all the different challenges we face in the world. Spiritual wandering is an important thing for us to consider. And that's why James, writing this very pastoral, concerned, I would even say fatherly letter to a group of churches, ends by saying, among all of this, be watchful for one another and be motivated and concern yourself with helping those who wander. And to motivate us, I, I, I saw three ways in the text, particularly that, that James, if, if motivation is his goal, and I would say from the tone of the passage, we see he's really trying to motivate us. He's not just correcting or laying a burden. He's saying this is a desirable thing that you would pursue wanderers. And he gives us some motivations that are here in the text. And there are at least three ways that I see James motivating us to be a part of pursuing those who spiritually wander. And so I want to look at those today and uh, work our way through them. The first way we see that is that he motivates us with the terminology itself of spiritual wandering or wandering souls. The first way James motivates us to care for one another is by the description that he actually uses here for those who need to be pursued. It's obvious this is an encouragement, an assignment, even exhortation to pursue those who wander. But he wants to set our our minds straight into the kind of the right word picture for what it is we're doing. And so he uses this terminology of wandering or wandering souls. He describes them as those who have wandered from the truth. So we see it in the text. He speaks as though it might be possible for any of us to experience a season of wandering and be in need of others to help turn us back to the path of walking in the truth. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. Notice anyone there says it's possible that anyone might do this. 
It's possible for any of us to experience a season of wandering and be in need of others to help turn us back to a path that is walking in the truth. But think about it. The term wanderer itself gives us a word picture that protects us against the human tendency we have of harsh judgment for those who have sinned or those who have made decisions that are different than what we would have in a situation. One of the reasons in any group, and churches certainly are not immune to this, that it can be difficult to challenge or help one another is because when we've made some wrong decisions or been on the wrong path, those trying to help can often have a, a legitimate spirit of judgment. Like On one level, I think our culture is terrified of being challenged. We're sort of into this time of forced affirmation for every decision, individual decision everyone makes, and we just don't give permission for people to challenge us, what we believe, what we think is important, how we live, and we're terrified of that. But kind of on the flip side, I mean, we've seen a lot of bad versions of people challenging one another, haven't we? We've probably been a part of it, and we might have been on both sides of it at some point in our life. It's natural to human nature in areas that we're successful or doing well for us to become quite judgmental in the way that we engage other people who might have wandered from a, clear, from a place of clear conviction. When we're dealt with as the wanderer in a way that lacks compassion, we're generally not very open to change. So James uses the term wanderer because it guides us in the way that we're to look at these concerns. We can all feel the possibility of wandering in some manner and therefore can be guided by that to engage with someone who has wandered from the truth in a way that is less judgmental and more helpful. That doesn't mean we won't have to challenge them, but the spirit in which we do it, the posture in which we take, the humility we carry ourselves will change the way the conversation is had, the things that we do, and the way that we engage. And so he uses the term wanderer to create a sense of compassion rather than a sense of judgment. That doesn't guarantee that the people that we engage will be open. I've pastored for over 20 years and at times had to challenge people about things they were deciding or ways they were thinking, and I found that not everybody is open even when you're quite calm and gentle. Now, I'm not always quite calm and gentle, but um, for the most part, you see that it's not going to guarantee you never know how someone is going to respond. But it makes it more likely that you're going to have a profitable conversation when you think of them in terms where you're really trying to help someone who has wandered from the truth and would appreciate a chance to reconsider what they're doing. When you take that posture, it's a, it's a very different conversation. The term wanderer also, I think, really helps serve to highlight the most common way that people lose hold of their spiritual direction. Listen, if you don't get anything else out of the sermon this morning, let me just try to help you think about something uh, for a moment. The most common way people lose hold of their spiritual direction in life is from wandering, not outright rejection. From wandering off a few steady steps at a time. Wandering is the way I've seen it most normally happen. Wandering evokes the idea of a person that isn't setting out altogether to reject the Christian faith or deny God's instruction in their life or His rightful place, but somehow they've gotten pretty far away from the truth and the possibility of getting back to it seems distant 
Serious spiritual danger, like any kind of danger, is the sort of thing that can be wandered into. You didn't anticipate where you would be or how far it would go. For sure, the choices along the way are your responsibility, but you didn't imagine getting this far when you started. You can wander away. Let me highlight three ways I've seen people wander from the faith over 20 years of pastoring. First, I've seen people wander from the faith because of trials in their life. I think that's why James puts it here, because he focuses so much on trials in the book of James. The loss of a loved one, an experience of suffering or pain, failure at a task or a calling that was important to you at one time. These experiences of hardship and of weakness, of disappointment, can, re- can require support and help as they bring to, th- bring to surface in our life, things in our life that we may not be sure how to reconcile with what we understand the Bible to teach about God's love for us and His plans and His purposes for our lives. And if we're not ready in those moments of difficult trials or suffering, we can wander. So having yourself in a place where you're surrounded by people who will protect you from wandering is a safe haven in times of trial and difficulty. And usually when you head into the trial, it's too late to prepare. So that's the first way I've seen people wander. Second, I've seen people wander because of intellectual challenges. Admittedly, the teachings of Christ can run contrary to some of the popular beliefs of any time in history. And our time and place is not unusual. There are certain things that are common, almost just conventionally held ways of thinking about life that are a part of life in our culture that run contrary to things that the Bible teaches. That can present challenges. I've seen people who were unprepared to meet the intellectual challenges around them with clear understanding about the answers and ways of thinking that could have helped strengthen their faith rather than cause them to wander from it. Hear me, sometimes our our intellectual beliefs do need to be refined because we've not wrestled deeply with what the Bible actually teaches. And maybe you've accepted some simplistic version of doctrine that was easy at some time past, but now in your life you're finding that challenge and you need to deepen your roots. You need to actually learn to think more deeply about what the Bible teaches about things and how that squares with life around you. And that kind of refining is a necessary part of strengthening your faith. But sadly, many people don't even realize that Christianity as a tradition has deep intellectual resources that have stood the test of time and faced many challenges and developed really satisfying answers to the hardest questions of life. And so in the face of new ideas or challenges, they wonder. Being a part of a church where you can ask questions of people who have faced some of the same difficult challenges you have is one of the ways we protect one another from wandering. We can have conversations about the ideas that matter and we can walk through those moments with strength and confidence. Third way, I've seen people wander because of relationships. Deep down, the emotional experience of desiring acceptance or maybe the fear of potential rejection by a person or some desirable group can massively reshape our faith. 
Practically, I've seen people get into a, a romantic relationship that they've desperately wanted to hold on to with someone uh, that really caused them to wander from the faith rather than to grow in Christ. But listen, it doesn't just happen in romantic relationships. As people start new careers, or they fit themselves into a new job team, or place of work, or they want to fit themselves into some place in culture that is important to them, many times they begin to look for acceptance by those around them, and adults are prone to peer pressure just like teenagers are. And before long, they can begin to wander from previously held deep convictions in order to gain acceptance in the place that they really want to be successful. I've seen people wander in all of those ways. James motivates us here to help one another in these situations using a word that evokes compassion and solidarity rather than judgment. The possibilities of wandering like that are something we can't protect one another from. But it takes a willingness to engage and it takes real relationships to do that. And James is saying that we should be concerned to make sure we, we build a culture in the church that protects people from wandering. So that's the first motivation. The second thing he does is he motivates us with the universality of the challenge. He motivates us with the universality of the challenge. I use the word universality because it means that this is a task for everyone. It, this is a task for everyone, not just a leader or a couple of leaders. James is motivating everyone in this kind of pursuit. If you look in the text, one of the things that immediately stuck out to me here in these closing verses was the use of indefinite pronouns. Everybody remembers what an indefinite pronoun is. Let's see a raise of hands. All my grammar nerds out there. All right, I love grammar. Now, for those of you who don't remember indefinite pronouns, let me just give you a little grammar lesson. We'll, we'll give a quick refresh. Indefinite pronouns are pronouns that are, that are used when you don't have a particular or a limited set of people in mind for what you're saying. As James instructs the church, he doesn't say, let the, the leaders know that if they bring back a wanderer, that they've done a good thing. He instead wants everyone to feel the motivation of his instruction here. And he says, if someone engages in this indefinite pronoun, just any of y'all who are listening, if you do this, this is a good thing. You're, you're actually accomplishing something deeply important. You should be motivated to do this. Let me encourage you to do this. If someone engages in the effort, let whoever has done it know how valuable what they're doing really is. In fact, think about what James is doing. He's likely knows that the leaders are going to receive the instruction and they're the ones who are to engage in it. And he says, make sure you reinforce to people that, that uh, there's an important task of pursuing wanderers. That it's close to the heart of God that we would pursue those who have wandered away that God is a loving father who pursues wanderers to bring them home because often once you've wandered away you get the sense you're not welcomed back you may have noticed we read the prodigal son this morning part of the reason is because Jesus uses that story and we'll talk about it in a minute as a way to say no matter how far you've wandered you're welcome home 
And he wants there to be a sense of motivation for all of us to know that, that joining God in that loving call and pursuit of other people images him in a way that is good. And so he motivates everyone with these indefinite pronouns. James is speaking here to the whole group of people in the church who will receive the letter and teaching them a general value that should inform how they relate to one another. Think about what that means for a moment. James' vision for church life is a place where the whole body is working together to help one another in seasons of wandering. You know, over and over in the New Testament, I always like to highlight this whenever we get here, is that Christianity is a team sport. It's something where, where nobody gets the glory, where in pursuit of Jesus, every person on the team contributes and that we can't actually live out our Christian faith faithfully in a vacuum as just individuals. And you see that here. This is, this is a job for all of us. Spiritual leaders may bear some particular responsibility to be more watchful over the church community, but James insists that it's a task for everyone who belongs to the church to consider what it looks like to provide spiritual watchfulness and protection for one another. And so if you are a Christian, you are encouraged in this text to join in the task of watching out for one another. Now listen, I'm afraid of heights. Anybody with me? It's the difficult fall that I really, I guess I'm terrified about. Um, I've always been afraid of heights. I don't think it's something that developed. I think I just had a keen sense of where, uh, awareness of my own lack of balance. And so, you know, it's just, it's interesting though, as I think about being afraid of heights, it's kind of in contrast to the fact that even though I'm afraid of heights, I like doing things that involve risk. Uh, you know, I've gone paragliding, which usually people who are afraid of heights probably wouldn't decide to go paragliding. I enjoy rock climbing. I enjoy all kinds of things that have to do with heights and riskiness, but I only like them when there's like a security net below. I feel there, there's something about either being, you know, roped in or knowing that there's a net that immediately takes away my very drastic fear of heights. You know, I have an extension ladder, and, um, you know, just this week, instead of using that extension ladder to climb up to our roof and clean out the gutters, we paid our neighbor Marvin to go up on the roof and go ahead and clean that thing out. Because once I got, uh, I, I tried it out a little while ago, and I thought, no, this just isn't for me. And so Marvin did it, and I'm really thankful for him. Uh, but, but, you know, if I know that there's a net, all my fears go away. There's a, secu there's a certain security to it. I can remember as a teenager uh, going to one of these ropes courses, and it wasn't like a totally high ropes course, but, uh, but it was far enough off the ground where if you fell, you knew it was going to hurt. Uh, and so instead of actually having you strapped in with all those uncomfortable harnesses, they just had this netting below. And so if you fell, you fell into the netting. But, you know, if you fall into one of those protective nettings, you don't ask yourself which one of the ropes in the netting saved you. You're not counting on just one rope running through the netting to be the one that captures you. The power of a net is the fact that it's many ropes that are anchored into multiple places. 
And because of that, it creates a sense of safety that will catch you even when you fall. And and this is the picture that James is really painting, is that uh, a sense of dispersed responsibility and dispersed uh, sense of vigilance that would protect one another because we're anchored in many places so that the wanderer is helped. It's a safety net. And the only way it works is when the majority of us embrace the motivation and the opportunity that James is talking about here. And so we see that this is a universal challenge. That's the picture James is trying to create here in the church, a spiritual safety net that we can count on because it's not dependent on one person or anchored in one place. Listen, even in a church our size, it's not possible for a singular leader to be watchful for all of us. There's, capa- there's obvious capacity issues to that. We've always had a model of leadership here that, that engages in plurality where we have lots of leaders concerned. But even when we have five, six elders, there's still enough people coming in and out of the life of our church that it's not a sufficient safety net. We're only strengthened when most of us really feel the responsibility to help one another walk faithfully with Christ. And so this is the picture he gives us. That we would, we would learn how to engage with one another. We have depth in our relationships that would allow us to protect one another from wandering. Third, he motivates us with the desirability of the results. While not, while not promising to us, that we will always be successful in bringing someone who has wandered back to the truth. He does, he does tell us what happens, motivate us with, with the benefits that take place when we do. And they're, they're pretty powerful here. Spiritual wandering comes with two types of danger that we protect one another from when we bring those who are wandering back to walking in the truth. The first protection... Is, is sort of a, a protection from a permanent or ultimate wandering. James says the one who brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Save his soul from death. The Bible makes it clear that to, to reject the grace of salvation offered by God through faith in Jesus Christ is to give way to the full corrupting influence of sin in our souls and it ultimately leads to complete separation from God and spiritual corruption which here ends ultimately in spiritual death and judgment before God. This is what he's talking about when he says when he's describing the death of the soul. A total separation from what strengthens us for what is good. Ultimately wandering into a total lostness. And he's saying, you know, when, when, we, when we keep from someone from going that far, we are rescuing them from an ultimate problem before God. Which raises some questions. But before we think about that, I just, I just want you to see how much he, he says is at stake in wandering. Death of the soul here means death of one of our primary created functions of being God's image bearers in the world we've been created to live in. Wandering away from God then and ultimately rejecting Him has the serious consequences of rejecting what we've been created to do. 
And then ultimately, being seen as those who have robbed God of His rightful place in our lives as our Lord and instructor and sovereign, and we've gone to live our own lives, for which we will experience judgment. I think the point is that wandering deepens to rejection and what the Bible calls apostasy. Turning away in reality from the faith that you previously professed and living without reference to God. In this situation, bringing back a wanderer may be the thing that ultimately roots them in the truth of the gospel after a season of only professing it on the surface. Jesus describes the need for this in the parable of the sower. Let me try to help help you kind of put this together. He's speaking on a practical level from our vantage point. Not everyone who professes faith in Christ or has a positive attitude towards the gospel or shows up to a church and rolls along with it, not all of them have really been rooted in genuine faith. Jesus describes several categories, one of which is initially receiving the truth, but it not taking root, and then through a period of trials, withering away. And that happens regularly. And from our vantage vantage point, it looks like somebody wandering away before the seed really gets rooted. And so so what happens is we have this opportunity as those who care for one another spiritually to help one another get our roots deep in Christ where we experience real security and, and rather than become someone who has walked away permanently and then gets to a place where they intellectually have rejected God, their life has rejected God, and they're, they're, they're no longer even thinking about what God desires for their life. The church is to be a place that pursues wanderers like that and helps them become rooted in a genuine faith that can't be ultimately wandered from. When we pursue wanderers in this instance, we are demonstrating God's fatherly love like we see in the parable of the lost son who really never knew his father's love until he came home. He had been in the house, but he hadn't really experienced it at its depth. But when he comes home, he sees it in a clearer way. So when we pursue wanderers, we're actually serving as God's practical gardeners and caring for the gospel seed to see it on to its completed work. It's almost astounding that he says that person saves their soul from death. Because in in a church like ours, we'd say, wait a minute, I can't save anybody, right? Well, he's talking about the practical implication of being willing to be a pursuer. And and through that, being God's instruments for ultimately working out the purpose of God's saving work in the gospel of Jesus. We become his instruments so much that James says, we want to recognize a sort of credit. Now, ultimately, we know it's, it's not by our power. It's not by our resources, certainly not by our death and sacrifice, but because of Christ. But, but the practical instrument in the work is you and I. And he's motivating us to do that. To be practical instruments in God's hands. That's the first benefit. The second thing he describes is that we cover over a multitude of sins. There are certainly those who have been rooted in the gospel who have experienced seasons of wandering. 
One of the dangers of spiritual wandering is that it makes us vulnerable to sin. All sorts of sin and decisions that we previously may have considered out of bounds become open to us in times of wandering. Here's why our pursuit of one another in wandering matters. To cover over sin here means to help people experience genuine forgiveness and get back on walking on the path of obedience. Because sin is like a trap. We move from wandering to greater wandering in part because deep down we believe that our sin cannot be overcome and we know we're no longer welcome back home with our Heavenly Father. If you've ever experienced a, a season of spiritual wandering, you know the hardest thing to do is to come back from it because you feel deep shame and guilt that you ever got there in the first place. And you just really wonder whether you can come back and really walk with Him and experience a season of renewal. See, See, by being a place where we go and remind, the covering of sin reminds people that there's reconciliation and forgiveness and compassion with God. It reminds people that one of the ways that Satan loves to hold us in his traps is to tell us that God doesn't want us back home. I think the the sort of lavishness of the father's response in the prodigal son story is just simply to say, regardless of whether you figured it out or worked it out, just come home. Just come home. you got all these weird ways of thinking about it. I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to do this. I don't deserve that. Just come home. And let Him show you who He is. And see, when we, go, when we go out into the highways and the byways of life and we say God welcomes wanderers, we have the opportunity to remind them that it's the shed blood of Christ and His sacrifice on the cross that covers our sin and not us cleaning ourselves up and successfully bringing us back, ourselves back. And in doing so, when people become convinced of that, it rescues them from further seasons of sinful living that would destroy them and keep them trapped. And so our responsibility is is not ourselves to just go out so we feel better to have someone back. But on behalf of the Father, we speak out the glorious promises of the gospel that you've never been too far away to come home. He motivates us with the desirability of these kinds of results. The prodigal son, I, I just think that parable is probably the most powerful parable in all of the Bible. In the, in the parable, you know, he wanders from his father's house with these desires of freedom. And the younger son in the story, you know, he never imagines he could have plunged into the depths of sin and disobedience to God's instruction as he finds himself in after blowing through all of his money. He's broke, humbled, and ashamed and can't imagine coming home. But eventually, he begins to think about going home as a servant. Now, if you don't understand the story well, it's designed, actually, Jesus tells it to show us that God desires those who are walking with him to pursue those who have wandered. We didn't read the whole thing today, but the older brother in the story... We're to understand as Jesus tells the story, the older brother could have gone off into the far country and found his brother and told him that he was welcome to come home. Convinced him to come home because the father desired him home. But the older brother is judgmental and prideful. 
He doesn't share the brokenhearted desire that his father has for the younger to return. And Jesus tells the story because he is the true and greater older brother. You see, Jesus is, if you insert what he's doing into the story, he's the older brother who, for the love of the father, goes and pursues the wanderer in the far country and is here to bring them home, to compel them to know that their sins can be covered, they can be forgiven, they can experience new life, they can wear the robes of righteousness and be considered a son in the father's house. And when the religious leaders are criticizing Jesus, for spending time having meals with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. They're criticizing him and he tells this story to explain what he's doing. He's pursuing wanderers with the love of God. That's why he tells the story. Everything Jesus did, his sinless life and example, his death on the cross, his resurrection, were all to make it possible for us to know our sins are covered by him. He's paid the complete cost. He'll bear whatever it takes. And we're welcome home. You know, that story is the story of every true Christian. We've been the wanderers who Jesus found. And he brought back to the love of the Heavenly Father. If you conceive of your Christian faith in any other way, you're likely to become self-righteous and never, never participate in caring for wanderers. But when you know deep down you've been the wanderer and Jesus gave everything he has to come bring you home, to level with you, to reason with you, to compel you, to invite you, to convince you, well then you want to join him. You want to do the same thing for others. You want to make sure that no one fails to understand what's possible from out in their wandering. If they could turn around and they can be forgiven and they still have a hope in the future. You see, when you know that deep down in your soul that you were the wanderer he pursued, it transforms you to desire that for other people. And if you don't see yourself in that story of the gospel, it becomes really difficult to care for people who have wandered, to have compassion, to remember what it's like, to just not know, to not be certain, to wonder what it'll cost. And so Jesus comes to us. And, and, and you know, as we close this morning, I just, I just want to talk to two types of people in the room. Maybe, maybe you know that you have spiritually wandered away from God. And you're not really sure how to make your way back. You're not sure what to do next. And you've thought of all these things that you need to do. But the first thing you have to settle in your heart is what God is doing right now as he waits. There's this powerful picture in the parable where he's looking out on the horizon. It seems day by day, just waiting. And when he finally sees the glimmer of hope that it's his son, he runs out. First thing you have to settle is, is knowing that the grace of God says that he desires for you to come back regardless of whether you've got a good speech and you've proven that you're going to be faithful the next time. 
he invites you to come home and experience the power of his spirit to transform you, not your own self-discipline to bring you back to where you think you need to be before you walk in the door. He just wants you to take the step and say, God, help me come home. Help me walk with you. Receive me. Forgive me. Cover over my sin. And you can do that today. If you've never turned from your sin to trust Christ today, you can say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've wandered off, but I want to come home. But there's also some of you who you know you're a Christian and you're in a particular season of, of wandering. You may not feel like you're in a place of danger, but you know that your heart's grown cold to the Lord. You've been distracted. There's something going on in your life. You may or may not have shared it with someone else but you feel like you've been wandering and you wonder what to do today. Well, I just, I just wanted, I want you to hear the warning from the love of God that you don't have to continue to walk into danger, that there are people here that care about you, that want to converse with what's going on in your life. We want to help you spiritually walk with Christ. We want to answer your questions. We want to help you figure out what's going on with those doubts in your heart, in your life. And we want to do it from a place of honesty so you can discover the power of what God can do in a fresh way in your life. And we'd love to be a part of that. For the rest of us, it's our desire to be a church where people who have wandered know that they can find their way home through the ministry that happens, that we would not just let it happen in this room, but we'd be a people who pursue those who have wandered I'm amazed all the time as I connect with people in our community, uh, how many people have in the past at some point thought deeply about spiritual things or considered where they were and just wandered off. They don't have a vibrant church family. They don't know if there is even such a thing as one. They're not sure how to make their way back to thinking about those things again. And maybe you're the person God's put next door to them or in the cubicle or on the bus, or on their child's soccer team. And God desires that you would see yourself as not just someone who's been brought back in by the gracious love of Christ, but sent back out to invite the wanderers to come home. And that you need a fresh passion to really pursue those people and some others to lock arms with right here in the church. That we can pray that God would make us a people who have a heart sensitive to helping people really become rooted deeply in Christ. I know that's my desire. I hope you'll join me in it as we pray this morning. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your love for us. We we submit ourselves to your word. We thank you for the ways that it challenges us, the unexpected ways as we come to worship and we read your word in which you focus our energy and our hearts on things that matter deeply to you. And today, God, we just praise you that you, had that you showed your love to us when we were wandering. And we ask that you would make us instruments in your hands to be people who pursue those who have wandered from the truth. Lord, we put ourselves before you for that purpose. In Jesus' name.